Me. My name is uh, Stefan Borjahammer, and I'm Dean of the Theological Faculty here at uh, Lund University. And as a Dean, I have the honor and pleasure of introducing our new docent in the Sociology of Religion, Torniki Metreveli, who will soon give his uh, docent lecture, but first, uh, a few words of introduction. So, uh, Tornike received his uh, PhD in sociology in 2017 at the University of Bern in Switzerland. He became a postdoctoral fellow at our Center for Theology and Religious Studies, I think in 2020, or was it in 2021? 2021. 2021, quite recently, but he has uh, made an imprint already. His uh, competences and his uh, generous personality have been much appreciated. And I would like to single out uh, three areas in which uh, his contributions to our academic environment have been particularly significant. So firstly, at the CTR, we have a long-standing interest in the study of Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Christianity. However, uh, our expertise has been particularly in uh, Orthodox and Oriental Christianity in the Middle East and to some extent in, in North Africa. And of course, um, uh, Orthodox and Oriental Christians uh, uh, from those areas in Sweden. Uh, Tornike has um, brought additional competence because uh, you specialize in Orthodox Christianity in the Slavic lands and in Georgia. And this has been uh, a very welcome addition to what we already have. Tornike has also contributed strongly to uh, what is now a rapidly developing research interest in Christianity and nationalism. During his uh, years as a postdoc here, we have had an internet platform dedicated precisely to Christianity and nationalism, in which Tornike played an instrumental role, organizing uh, interesting events, taking care of practicalities in an impeccable manner, and uh, contributing decisively to the success of this uh, platform. And thirdly, while the CTR does have competence in the sociology of religion, we have not, for a few years at least, had anyone who specializes in this field. Uh, your additional competence in sociology of religion is therefore very welcome. Uh, in addition to this and other academic activities, uh, for you are a very industrious person uh, with uh, many things going on. Uh, Tornike's openness and generosity have made him very appreciated both here at the CTR and uh, in other uh, parts of the Faculty of the Humanities. And although I have not attended any of your teaching, I'm sure that your evident pedagogical skills have also been very appreciated by the students. For all these reasons, we are very pleased that you chose to apply for the title of docent in the sociology of religion here at the Faculty of Theology. Uh, we are also very happy that thanks to a generous 
donation. You will be with her as for at least another two years, I believe. And uh, we hope, of course, that you will stay much longer than that. Now, I will let you give your lecture. And uh, the fascinating title you can already see before you, Timeless Traditions, Changing Times, The Sociological Voyage Through Orthodox Christianity. Well, many thanks for a very, very um, sweet introduction and uh, no pressure at all, right? Thank you for, for such a warm, warm welcome. I'm going to be talking today about, and I'm going to try to unpack this sort of the, the name of the, of, the, of the title in a way of the, of the structure of this presentation. So I'll try to talk about church-state relations in Orthodox Christian realm. This is a topic that has been fascinating for me for, 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 for all of these years, and I'm interested in the crisis situation. So how power works in the crisis situations and how religion responds to power and what's the unintended consequence of this interaction, if you will? So I'm interested in church-state relations, but I'm also interested in the notion of crisis and how Orthodox Christianity responds to crisis. So the third, third part would be the angle of canonicity, territoriality, and war. This is the topic which is my current research, and I'm, I'm happy to kind of uh, build on, on, on ongoing work and then open up the floor for the discussion when we're outside drinking coffee. So just give you a brief... Um, um, context of the research. So we see here that religion, um, where exactly do people practice Orthodox Christianity? And we can see here the numbers, um, which are quite telling here. We see Moldova, Greece, 90% of people um, who have Orthodox majority, so identify as, as Orthodox. Of course, another question is, what does it even mean when people identify for what is belonging and believing the whole kind of dichotomy which is ongoing in the sociology of religion uh, for years. But these are Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, Romania. We see the country Serbia, Bulgaria. So this is more or less the scope of my research. We see here Armenia, which is not usually put into the Orthodox camp for some reason. But, but again, for analytical reasons, the pure research have done it. So I kind of follow the, 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 the pure research framework. Another important part is the practice, the religiosity, it has features of religiosity which, which might seem peculiar given high identification rates and relatively low uh, practice of religion, practice of religiosity, if you will. So this is something that characterizes Orthodox uh, Christianity, and I will gradually unpack that throughout my talk, why I find this an interesting causal story, which can be uh, fruitful for, for, uh, for the book that I hope to uh, publish uh, this year. Um, so they did Central and Eastern European uh, Europeans might be described as believing and belonging without behaving, according to the Pew Research. I really like this analogy. So again, relatively low shares of Orthodox across Central and Eastern Europe attend church weekly. So attendance is not a big deal in, in, in Orthodox Christianity. Another important kind of a clarification question before I go into the questions and, and, and kind of a bigger trajectory of research, if you will, is conflicting principles in how canonicity is applied, how the independence is given to the church, if you will. What does it mean to have autocephalous church? The three principles which regulate that, I mean, I would say principles with a sort of a, with a, with, with a certain reservation, with a, with, a, with a term, but at least the first one is canon law, except for the original patriarchates, which date back from early Christianity in antiquity, Orthodox churches have orga organized themselves as, as, as national churches. That's why we have, always have the spread of Serbian Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Church, and etc. Jurisdiction is another important aspect. Orthodox nation can acquire sovereignty, but only if it is granted by the church, which has canonical jurisdiction over its territory. So 
there is another interesting angle of, of again the whole saga around Ukraine, especially when two nations have two uh, two two uh, churches have claims on the canonicity. So basically, Russian Orthodox Church, which sees Ukraine as part of its canonical territory, and the Ecumenical Patriarch or World Patriarchate, which sees also it as a part of the canonical territory. Another such uh, country is Estonia, which is also kind of the conflicting. And the third one, which I think is an important kind of uh, contextual information, very often in the Eastern Europe, when we speak about a nation, um, it has very interesting ethno-ethnic connotation. Very often this is fused. Ethnicity and religion are sometimes used as synonyms. And very often throughout the history and has large historical context. Why is it so? It has a lot to be linked to the historical um, relationships between the state and the church, and but, but also about the notion of nation itself, which has its kind of linguistic origins. Right. What about the timeless traditions? Important part of the deal here is that in the context of orthodoxy, there is a significant principle that defines the relationship between church and state, and thus shapes the ways in which orthodoxy engages with with politics, with geopolitics, and international relations. And this is a dualistic balance of power, which is basically, from contemporary context, we can call it clientelistic practice between the church, on the one hand, and the state, where one is using its kind of, uh, you know, sacred narratives to legitimize its existence in an exchange for, you know, luxurious practices, funding deals, and etc., very often this has ideological components, and I'll address that in the next slide. So features of hierarchical structures is also extremely important. So Orthodox Christianity is a decentralized religion. There is no pope. There is no CEO of the church, if you will. So it's a very decentralized and, and, and patriarchs, which are 15, depending on your kind of political stance, whether you recognize autocephaly of Ukraine or not, 15 uh, churches, and the patriarchs are, 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 are heads of the churches. They are kind of the major figures in, in, in their own uh, territory. Another important part is that Orthodox Church has, what I argue, institutional muscle memory of collaboration with political power. This is very often is uh, collaborating with kings, sultans, democrats, liberals, dictators. So adapting is something that is very characteristic to the Orthodox Churches, adapting to the political power and accommodating to the political needs being on the winning side, very often, of the political game. And another, for many scholars, peculiar aspect of Orthodox Christian um, institutional dynamics is its problematic approach to ecumenism. To say the very least, Orthodox Christianity maintains a level of separateness from other branches of Christianity, although there have been some improvements in the last years in terms of relationships with other churches. But again, the Russian invasion of Ukraine puts that division even far apart. So what is the literature? What, what's, again, I'm not going to bore you with, uh, with an awful lot in, going on in the literature, but very quick skip through the function of, of orthodoxy in, the, in, the, in, in what I, again, very reductionist here, give you four strands of literature in sociology of religion, which look at the function of religion. Religion at one time fills the ideological gap or is instrumentalized by the state or, again, kind of provides is a sacred mythology to, to, the, to the political regimes. These are three main um, kind of strands of literature, again, looking at the collapse of Soviet Union and etc. In, in the broader context. Or religion is a human security provider. So when the state fails, the church provides what state couldn't. 
in many parts of the world, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union, this became a big deal when the state institutions were fragile, corruption was really high, so the churches emerged to be um, a kind of the states within the states. That resulted in very luxurious deals for the churches in the form of constitutional agreements with some states, such as Georgia, which actually elevated the churches to the state level, in a way, without any responsibility, but very, very kind of a prominent position of power. So I argue that churches are also actors in their own right and their own making as they engage in spiritual geopolitics in which territoriality plays a major role. Um, so my trajectory has been animated by this question. So why does church wield significant political influence in some cases, but it doesn't in other? So what I did was, what you know, what most of the sociologists, uh, most of us do, uh, go to the field and try to see what's the pattern, kind of grounded theory, and well, if there is some interesting data, let the data speak. So I focused on Orthodox Christianity in Ukraine, Serbia, and Georgia, and asked myself, well, how do Orthodox churches in these three countries respond to the crisis? Because I'm obsessed with crisis, and I'm kind of my own past of, of, of living in the failed state in the post-communist uh, uh, Georgia, maybe, is, is a part of the reason why I'm so interested in how crisis influences social processes. So I was like, well, let's, let's see what, what happens with the social disruptions, what happens with economic uh, upheaval, what happens in the times of political instability, what, what do churches do in times of you know, religion, uh, in terms of, for example, social revolutions, right? And all of these three countries had so-called colored revolutions with a very different outcome. All of these countries had some legacy of communism. Again, slightly different communism, Yugoslav communism versus Soviet communism in terms of treating religion was very different. But yet again, there was a lot of, in terms of the research design, what we call most similar or most different systems design, there was some logic behind why I chose this country. So I went into the field work, did a lot of interviews, and combined them with historical analysis and legal analysis, not to be reliant on just interviews, but kind of put it in the broader context of the what we call triangulating the data, right? There'll be a lot of interesting jargons here. So I published a book called Orthodox Christianity and Politics of Transition, and I argued that there are three ideal types in very Weberian sense of the word, three types of modes of operation of the church. So constructive, accommodative, confrontational reformist and competitive nationalizing. So the question then is, of course, so why and when one mode becomes activated or is used and what explains kind of the hegemony of one to another. And I argued that, well, a lot of goes down to the actual material organizational interests of the churches to, to how to be accommodated in the, political, in the political system and in the constructive accommodative model. Again, the church um, accommodates to political power by de facto legitimizing the policies of the ruling elites. And if these organizational interests of religious actors are not accommodated or are perceived to be challenged, then church goes into the kind of daily politics. So I distinguished between two types of ideological or, 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 or two types of organizational interests. One are ideological, which has kind of symbolic meaning to be accommodated in the polity. Very often the churches are especially interested in the role in the public education. So very big symbol, sim symbol of nationhood in the logic of churches. Theological and dogmatic aspects and the second one was pragmatic, which was economic funding practices, policy concessions, and various sorts of um, uh, activities related to the public image of the church. Now I'll show you just a quick example of the Georgia. Uh, again, I have all the examples, but I have another slides to go. So I will give you a quick example on, of, of Georgia. 
This year, 2008, is the year of the Russian invasion of Georgia, and we see the funding of the church skyrocketing. So very often this, this political crisis and funding practices correlate because political elites um, are considerate of their electoral behavior, so they'd rather be friends with the most influential organizations uh, than not. Um, now, the changing times part. Well, changing pi- times part is my second edited volume, which is in press now, which looks basically, I'm kind of summarizing what I'm doing, and you will see the eclecticism of the, of the, of the, the way I speak, but also the, the, the way the, the whole research goes is very much echoing my own passion in the, in the orthodoxy crisis, if you will. So this second book is an edited volume, and well, which, which, which started as a result of the, um, of the fund, fund uh, the generous funding from the, from the, from the Swiss State Secretariat of Education, basically Ministry of Swiss Education. So we looked at the Orthodox Christianity and how it responded to the um, global pandemic. We tried to kind of unpack that and see, well, is there something interesting there in terms of rituals, in terms of the structural constellations, in terms of the ideological angles, religious practices, whatnot. So again, we examined religious function in shaping, resolving global crisis. We accessed how the pandemic changed religious practices. Um, and we kind of looked also at the analysis of the pandemic's effect on priest to parishioner relations. And in, I think to, to credit to us, we did work in, the, in times of um, uh, you know, the, the whole lockdown. So we interviewed people at the time when it was kind of illegal to do that in a way. So I don't know if I have to be proud of that being on record. Um, so we used mixed methods. We, 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 we triangulated between the surveys, which we had uh, done in Ukraine, Three uh, representative surveys, again, generously funded by the uh, Swiss Secretariat. Um, So I was fortunate to be a PI of this project to work with 11 scholars from different parts of the world. And we've done basically, uh, we have the following um, uh, findings. Um, uh, Again, with with a kind of pinch of salt, it's kind of also feels absurdly glorifying to reduce two years of our life to one sentence on each chapter uh, as, as a funding, but that's kind of nature of the game. So... Yeah, we, 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 in my chapter, we, we uh, find out that churches were involved in performative security. They were performing the role as if they were a- adhering to the sanitary regulations while in practice they were engaged in clientelistic practices with the government striking the land deals and business activities. Um, uh, colleagues, from Russia, uh, show, colleagues from Russia showed how a Russian church has a potential for secularization in times of crisis and how the hierarchy and hierarchical conflict between the different groups within the Russian Orthodox Church can change how church approaches the crisis. Again, very important part, yet another crisis in the Russian church. So again, the, uh, me and Timothy Brick looked at Christian nationalism and how it influenced, and we showed how it influenced vaccination behavior, and we find a strong correlationship between the um, Christian nationalism and vaccination behavior. Um, colleagues from Ukraine find out new practices were invented on the grassroots, the grassroots level, um, Again, the, some, some scholars from Serbia find out that communal worship remained uh, intact despite the fact that there were public pressures on Kosovo and, and Serbia in times of crisis. And, and Greek and Cypriot Orthodox churches showed a, a displayed a rift between the conspiracy and fundamentalism and kind of moderate faith. An interesting part was also in Romania and Bulgaria, where we saw alliance between the right-wing populists and uh, the trend that is kind of replicated all over in many, many other countries, but the the, um, the uh, alliance with the populists and conspiracy theorists, if you will, um, whether in terms of the adaptation of practices or in terms of the uh, of the of the vaccination. 
So we will be publishing some of the results um, after the book is out on our uh, Religion in Praxis uh, blog, and we will have a special episode on the podcast. For those of you who don't know, this is the this is the infrastructure that I'm, I have started since arrival here to, to Lund. So it's a blog and a podcast, and basically through the help of the colleagues here, Joel and Jonathan, who are in the room, we are doing this um, uh, more or less uh, discussion-like series, which you are more than welcome to to listen to if you have uh, time or will will to do that. So um, the next and the contemporary uh, question is is the two angles of my research. One angle that looks at the institutional and theological parts of the of the conflict, and the other which looks at the grassroots study of lived religion in crisis. And this is something that I will spend a bit more time, given the relevance, but also the time time constraints that we, that we have. So I will start from the, what I call trial of Samuel Huntington, which I find for the first time in my kind of imaginary, uh, kind of uh, theorizing, the paradox of Stalin's monument was something that inspired to think about that. So this Stalin's city of birth is Gori in, in, in Georgia, in the central Georgia, small provincial town where many people proud, pride themselves to be affiliated with, with, with him. In 2008 war, the uh, two structures which remained untouched by the Russian bombardments, artillery bombardments and, uh, and aerial attacks were his monument and his house museum. Despite the precision bombing that they used, the uh, the, 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 the heating of the hospitals and the kindergartens was something that we now know from the Ukraine example that is characteristic of the Russian military tactics. But at that time, not many people knew that. So that was something very surprising that why didn't they hit Stalin? Of course, I'm, I'm not reducing the whole complexity to it could be potentially an accident and there be no correlation. But the whole idea of thinking Stalin as a symbol of civilizational idea of civilizational idea at the time, Georgia was strongly uh, pro-NATO, pro-EU, anti-Russian on this political discourse level. Again, I'm using binaries, but I'm kind of giving you a quick shortcut. So Stalin was somewhat dialectical other, if you will, against which the Georgia, the pro-Western Georgia, identified itself. By the way, this move, this 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 monument was removed from the Stalin's city of Gori after the war. I don't know if there was any kind of correlation between that or not. So I was. Puzzled with this question, but never kind of fully, fully um, conceptualized. What's the what's the story? What's this kind of causal causal story out there? And in 2014, when Ukraine was invaded, there there, there was a bigger kind of uh, question, which I think more or less got me to where I am now with these two angles of my research. So, how did different factors lead to different outcomes? How, in a way, the factor of Orthodox Christianity did play a different role when both Georgia and Ukraine and Russia are Orthodox countries, and yet the church and religion was used as a rationale to justify the invasion in one case and not at all mentioned in the first case. So there should be some sort of logic to that. What factors contribute to the different roles religion played in the conflict of Georgia and Ukraine? Why did Orthodox Christianity become a significant prop in Ukraine's conflict narrative while it remained largely in the shadows during the Georgian conflict. So there is a structural part which I think is extremely important. So Abkhazia and South Ossetia are two uh, occupied parts by the, by the, by the Russia and recognized uh, parts by the four states um, and historically belonging to the, Georgia, to the Georgian state. But canonically, 
they are not recognized by the Russian Orthodox Church as independent entities. So they're actually under the jurisdiction of the Georgian Orthodox Church. And although this jurisdiction is very symbolic, because the Georgian Orthodox Church cannot exercise basic rights in these parts because it's kind of controlled by the, by the troops. So Ukraine, on the other hand, is the canonical domain of the Moscow Patriarchate. So there are tensions on the, at least three levels. One is global between Moscow and Ecumenical Patriarchate. Second is local between Ukrainian Orthodox Church and Orthodox Church of Ukraine. Even the names themselves sound quite quite, quite complicated, right? So there are compelling different uh, um, epistemologies between these two churches, but the names are Orthodox Church of Ukraine and Ukrainian Orthodox Church. So for analytical reasons, we can say Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate and the Thomas Church, or uh, Autocephalos Church. Um, and on third level, there is, a, there is a tension on the geopolitical level when the Russian and Ukrainian states are backing their churches on political um, level. And there is a big holy mismatch between the canonical territories. And as you can see here, the uh, canonical borders of the churches do not match the legal borders of the states. This geospatial constellation, of course, makes the churches inevitably involved in cross-border affairs as long as it attend political economic interests extend well beyond the contemporary boundaries of their states. So it happens in other denominations too, but again, but the wars do not end, uh, these do not end with, with, with wars. So the mismatch between canonical territory and uh, sovereign territory triggers further research on geographically broader and theologically wider scale in the practices of other Orthodox churches. So I start to do baby steps with that um, and basically ended up doing research on First, on the Georgia, this is, by the way, the, 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 the um, canonical territory. On the left side, we see the canonical territory of the Georgian Orthodox Church. And on the right side, on the other side, well, well, here, I guess, here is the Georgian state sovereignty. Here is the church's vision of what constitutes as Georgia. So I was like, well, shall we unpack that in a way and try what, what, what sort of story are we doing here? And what I did was that I <clears throat> looked at... Um, the narratives of the churches, but also I tried to map where these churches are. So I was again granted with um, with a relatively small but very generous and mobile grant from the University of St. Gallen, and I had a very uh, uh, energetic team uh, of young scholars in Georgia. So we accounted all of the churches on the Georgian territory, all 3,407 of them, and we created the database which got us EU Prize for Journalism this year. So we ended up saying, well, there is an interesting story between the, 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 how the churches see um, what constitutes Georgia and how the states actually practice territoriality. But let's go back to the broader, kind of bigger, macro-sociological picture here. So the Russian Orthodox Church's geopolitical vision and how that relates to the conflicts and territoriality. How has the canonical territory within the broader context of Orthodox Christian civilizationism been instrumentalized or adapted to support different geopolitical objectives? How does the inherent ambiguity of the term itself, because the, the term itself is value, it can apply to any, it can justify any, any sort of foreign uh, sort of uh, policy um, uh, effort. Um, so how does the inherent ambiguity of the term uh, impact its applicability? For that, we need to unpack one more of the, you know, the arsenal in the orthodox package, if you will, the idea of uh, Russian world or the form of Christian civilizationism. 
But I argue that there is no singular Russian world, but there are multiple Russian worlds. On the one level, it's a purely cultural, um, not so much involved in geopolitics, not in, in, in ideology that is about Russian language and culture. But very often, what we know and what we, what we see is instrumentalized by the political power and it, it used to justify a various sorts of uh, foreign policy preferences and, and actions. So the term dates back to 11th century and refers to the East Slavic lands that, the, uh, that includes much of today's Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. But the modern usage of uh, Russian world, or in Russian Ruskimir, uh, was introduced in 1999 by writers at Kremlin-associated think tanks to mean the whole Russian-speaking world, including Russians living abroad. Again, an interesting uh, function that Russian Russian world has is, 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 is a part of the conversation here, so as a territorial discourse, Russian Russian world is encompassing the geographies which are beyond the, the, the borders of the Russian state. Again, according to Patriarch Kirill, Rus unites Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. So there is an element of shared past, historical memory, culture, and language, which constitute a basis of shared supranational identity. Somewhat, you know, orthodox European Union, adding a little bit of uh, geopolitics in it. At the center of Russian world are the Orthodox faith and Russian culture, or maybe Russian cultural exceptionalism. It's a phenomenon that doesn't fit, according to Patriarch Kirill, within the borders of one state and one ethnos, and is, is not connected with the interest of one state either. So for the Russian world to function on a macro level, it is irrelevant whether canonical territory, or in this case spiritual space, of, of the Russian church matches the territorial borders of the Russian state. So the Russian world is simultaneously an idea rooted in the Russian state, somewhat that affirms that Russia is our homeland, one, um, our one homeland, and the border transcending vision, if you will, which again is a common supranational project. So, but another aspect of that is is intersection of religion and national security. Um, so Russia's nuclear force, land, sea, and air has received patron saint. So there is a lot of symbolism present there. And a very big deal, which we'll see um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the forthcoming slides, of course, is the idea of Ukraine. Ukraine's independence, both canonically and territorially, is a big deal for the Russian Orthodox Church, but also for the state. So we have seen the uh, Russian Security uh, uh, Council of 2018 having the meeting on, on the topic of autocephaly 2019, the topic of Ukraine in autocephaly was ranked as number first on the security agenda. So it was a very big deal for some, uh, for some reason. Um, Russian Federation national security strategy adopted in 2015 even extensively mentions the word spiritual, religious, religion. Um, so the Russian world, beyond this kind of discursive framework, has a very interesting f secular, kind of sacralizing aspect, if you will. This, are the, this is the mosaic in... Uh, in uh, in the uh, in the main cathedral of Russian armed forces um, in in Moscow, the first part actually that was again removed because of the Putin's decision um, uh, featured the original featured Putin, Shoigu, and Gerasimov and other people from the Russian political establishment on the fesks. Um, but also the eclecticism of the church is still present there because it has a kind of a mixture of Soviet mythology and Orthodox Christian uh, uh, symbolism. Uh, on the icons, um, on as we see on the right side. So, the um, expanding the Holy Rus concept is one of the functions which this uh, this 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 uh, cathedral has. 
um, and which encompasses the territorial and spiritual dimensions of, 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 of that concept. So church is positioned as a central actor, which is sacralizing secular leaders, Stalin, Putin, and even Shoigu, advances for safeguarding and prosperity of the Russian state and the military are closely intertwined. Um, another is, aspect is revisiting the elements of nationalism, again, invoking romantic nationalism, resacralizing the Soviet past, which many of us know was an atheist past where religion was subjugated to the state or was persecuted. So there is a kind of eclecticism, if not dichotomy there. Another aspect is extending the spiritual jurisdiction to all the lands considered as part of Holy Rus, as manifested on, in the fresques in the, inside the church. So Kremlin justifies Ukraine's conflict via Holy Rus and canonical territory discourse, but was less prominent in Georgia's conflict due to its canonical insignificance. In other words, Georgia didn't matter canonically for the Russian Orthodox Church, and this discourse was not a practical to apply um, you know, for, for, this, for this particular invasion. Orthodox Christianity played a l- larger role in Ukraine due to the invocation of, of Holy Rus and canonical territory by the Russian Church, serving to justify the foreign invasion, of course. So another aspect of, 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 of my interest is the grassroots response. And I... Um, I went to Ukraine. This is again. This is a, this is a sort of a grass, grassroots response to the elite discourses, if you will. So this is the trajectory of my research, um, mostly covering the Western Ukraine. This is where the interesting phenomena, interconfession, interdenominational transfer, happened. So I was focused fully on the Western Ukraine and, in, in some capacity, to the Eastern Ukraine um, and Central Ukraine. So what are the counter geographies to the Russian world? What kind of geographies are Produced, or what types of responses, or some scholars argue resistances, are produced on the on the local level? Well, there are ideological, political, institutional, and and grassroots. Ideological question, and this is like a Ukrainian side of the story. The question basically is about who owns the Kievan Rus narrative. And there are a few figures here, um, somewhat polarizing, some or less. The first one is the. Uh, Arestovich, the guy which for many is a highly controversial political commentator, advisor, Instagram celebrity, astrologist, you name whatnot, very famous again in the, in the, in the Ukraine. He had some official position in the Ukrainian government. Um, another is the President Poroshenko, who invested his personal wealth and, and political capital in the idea of Ukraine's autocephaly. So basically, it was a very big deal for him to have this idea of one nation, one church. Autocephaly actually worked, but Petro Poroshenko didn't win the elections. Zelensky, who didn't even mention religion once in his campaign, actually become president. And now we are encountering one nation, one Christianity trends, which I will discuss later. But it's interesting what kind of responses does does the um, this ideological resistance or response generates on the Ukrainian level. Uh, polls from the Kiev Institute from May 2023 show a very interesting uh, the dynamics here. So institutional resistance is both legal, but also highly symbolic on Ukraine in Ukraine now. These are the lists of the laws, which are really boring to look at, I guess. Some of them are about the names of the churches, so how the churches shall be addressed legally, Ukraine Orthodox Church, in brackets, Moscow Patriarchate or not. This was basically part of the discussion. Another is, of course, the, no, the, the, the mechanisms for the parish transfers. So what happens when parish wants to switch its canonical jurisdiction from Moscow to Kiev? Again, this was the law that was addressing that. The status of the church with a head office in, quote, aggressive state, 
This was again the, the, the question how and uh, when the state shall intrude into the religious questions. Presidential decree on religious organizational activities, which allows the state to intrude into the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine or Ukraine Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate and check their activities and, and, and which kind of violates the principles of secularism for many uh, uh, commentators. And the very recent government's initiative to ban Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine. Um, and as we see here in the poll, uh, the, the support for, for, for that is, is uh, again, the, uh, in orange we see complete ban. Uh, the U uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine has risen um, to understandably because of the war context. Uh, but also it kind of shows the um, peculiarity in a way of the grassroots responses. So here we see the uh, uh, to which denomination you belong. This is the question. Orthodox Church of Ukraine, so the newly created Asocephalus Church, is, is the most popular church, followed by the uh, Orthodox Church without a specification, so just Orthodox. Um, and in interesting survey results compared uh, uh, to, for example, 2022, 72% uh, identify as Orthodox. Orthodox Church of Ukraine is, is uh, leading, but 54% of respondents identify with Orthodox Church of Ukraine. Only four identify with Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate. This could be partly explained by the you know public pressures and, uh, and, 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 and various other factors. But in terms of the institutional and popular uh, aspect, so institutionally, we see the Russian Orthodox Church is present. And we, in the blue lines, again, we see the Russian Orthodox Church in terms of number of parishes is still ahead of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. So the question which I think needs to be addressed in, in a more theoretical level, that's what I'm trying to do in my book called Sentimental Orthodoxy in Ukraine. So if the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Russian uh, of, of Moscow Patriarchate is so unpopular, then why people don't switch? What explains this kind of paradox, either in religiosity or in the discourses that we're consuming from, from, from the media and political commentators? So if people really identify, if the people see this church part of Kremlin's agenda, then why they don't just switch? So this is the paradox which I'm trying to understand for, uh, for, 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 for these years, still in the making. Um, I have data from 2018 to 2021. 20, uh, and then I followed and follow up the, the data and interviewed some of the people living in the Nordic states and some of them um, who, have, who are refugees and are living in the refugee camps. Some of them are, are scholars and try to see if there is any sort of a bigger story here. Um, so the study, again, I'm linking here my connection with the lived religion approach. I'm not going to bore you with that, but essentially the lived religion approach is a broader program in sociology of religion, which, which looks at more how religion is practiced on, on lived experience, so significance of people rather than kind of the institutional framework. This is basically the nutshell of this whole uh, strand. Again, Nancy Ammerman and others are, you know, Orsi, Maguire, Warner are top scholars doing the, the you know, amazing job in that. But the, 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 I, I try to kind of conceptualize the sentimentality uh, in this third manuscript, which I hopefully going to be out um, next year. So what is the sentimental orthodoxy? It's an approach. It's, it refers to a perspective on religious practice in Eastern Orthodox communities that prioritizes emotional bonds with clergy, common cultural heritage, and individual experience rather than rigid conformity to theological teachings and domination, denominations. But again... The, the, the fun, one might say, so how is it different from any other lived experience or, or, or kind of a cultural religion or any other religion, if you will? Anything that is connected to the church is so deeply emotional. 
What I argue is that it's identified with parish and social cultural reasons, and there is a phenomenon of declarative believer, which means that believer kind of on the paper, which basically is, 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 is somewhat an ambiguous uh, term to describe a situation where individuals publicly claim adherence to religion or belief or system primarily for social, cultural, or identity reasons rather than as a result of personal conviction or consistent practice of religion. So declarative believers may express their religious identity as a marker of belonging to a particular group, yet their religious practice or belief may not be simultaneously followed. So... Why sentimental? I think here, again, the AI picture which I generated is as confused as I was while writing this. So it is sentimental orthodoxy plays strong emphasis on the emotional connections and symbols, symbolic meanings and histories of the church buildings or parish life. In sentimental orthodoxy, local affiliations and relationships within religious communities often take precedence over strict adherence to doctrines. I think this is an incredibly important feature and sentimentality, sentimental highlights the emotional ties and nostalgic remembrance often experienced by parishioners inside or even outside of Ukraine or more likely outside of Ukraine, adding a crucial dimension to their religious, to their religious practice. So what happens to um, sentimental orthodoxy on the political institutional level? Sentimental orthodoxy emphasizes local affiliations again, as I said, but it's interesting that churches with a strong sentimental ties to local communities might prioritize local interests. So very often these interests are not in line with the state, uh, state uh, uh, discourses. So in, in my field, again, I had interviews with, with, with different um, uh, people of, re of different age, more or less representing the kind of a broader demographics. And very often some of the people were going to the Russian Orthodox Church not knowing it was Russian Orthodox Church for 30 years because what mattered for them was the connection to the priest, was the whether the priest was a nice guy or not, whether the language was in Ukrainian or Old Slavonic, uh, whether commemoration of the of 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 of, uh, uh, of the victims of the war was in the light of the foreign aggression or as civil war. So some small details actually made people shift or stay within the parish. So this was a very 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 sort of uh, revealing that sentimental orthodoxy's local affiliation might even influence the geopolitical alignment of churches because churches have to adapt to kind of maintain this homogeneity. So they might prioritize local interests or official geopolitical agendas based on the strength of local ties versus denominational allegiance. Now, of course, there are a bunch of problems with my own work and the limitations problem of the capital O. Aaron Goldman mentioned for the first time in our, in our, our, our seminar, I think that was a fascinating question, which I'm still trying to address, which is kind of a question of generalizability. You know, whether we, we, we have to use the orthodoxy with a capital O or not. So the framework of sentimental orthodoxy may not be applicable to other religious contexts as it's primarily focused on Eastern rituals and, and theology. Yet again, the question is, shall it be, if we're talking about phenomenology, how does the theolo theoretical framework of sentimental orthodoxy, for example, accounts for variation in individual experience of believers within the same religious community or tradition? Or can a sentimental orthodoxy effectively capture the dynamics and evolving nature of religious practice and belief, especially in the context of ongoing war and rapidly changing political landscape. So these are the questions which I am facing and I have to address. Um, but again, the question remains, what is the future of Orthodox Christianity in Ukraine? Will the war started in the name of Russian world and the Russian world in Ukraine or not? What is the unintended consequence of, of that interaction for most Ukrainians? 
Will we see a new angle of this war, whether a religious dimension of this war? Will we see a civil confrontation between the parishioners of Russian Orthodox Church and Kievan churches? These are questions which are out there, and definitely these are questions which we can't address in this presentation. And radicalization of public moods, again, an important part of, 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 of the discourse is what do people want? And as according to the recent surveys, there is an element of, of uh, there is a public demand for banning the church, but how uh, legally how to do that? According to the Ukrainian law, every single parish shall be banned individually, all 12,000 of them. There is no one ban mechanism. So the state has to go after every single parish. But the registration of parishes is a specific and very complicated manner. It is not a, there is no centralized system of registration. So parishes can be registered physically in one space, but the parishioners can live in another space. So there is a lot of technical and legal problems on how to ban, even if this ban is um, to be authorized. But then again, who needs this ban? And what kind of Ukraine, what will gain, what will Ukraine gain from this uh, from this ban? What will the parishioners of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, who might be speaking Russian and be patriotic Ukrainians, gain from this ban? These are, of course, the questions. And will they strengthen anti-Russian ethnic nationalism in Ukraine? Of course, is another question, which is open question. And I know I'm running out of time. The last thing is, of course, the the, the, the challenges which Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate has, how to deal with the idea of canonicity, how to deal with the idea of the canonicity in the light of this dichotomy between Orthodox Church of Ukraine and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Because for all these years, the major hegemonic narrative of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate was that everybody else is not canonical, only we are canonical. And suddenly now they are facing the, 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 the question, what will happen if they are distancing from the Russian Orthodox Church? Will they ski go to schism? Will they join the Orthodox Church of Ukraine? These are, again, all open questions. What are the legal challenges coming from the state, whether the state institutionalizes this practice of, um, of, 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 of banning the church or not? And, of course, how the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine will legitimate itself in the future in post-war Ukraine with its 4% uh, support. I think I'll stop here to give you the time for cake. Thank you very much. <laughs>